Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and welcome to our webinar on the future of the voluntary carbon credit markets. No novelty in the financial markets has attracted more attention in the recent past than voluntary carbon credits. They certainly look like that fabled unicorn, the win-win. They're a tool for driving investment by firms that uh, need to offset their carbon outputs into carbon-reducing projects. All those projects have to do, whether they're in place already or whether they need funding, is to issue carbon credits, each of which is equivalent to a tonne of CO2 avoided or removed. These are then recorded in a registry to maintain the integrity of the issue in much the same way that a central securities depository maintains the integrity of an issue of securities. Carbon reduction claims made by the issuer, certified by ostensibly independent agencies, the carbon credits are then sold to businesses which use them to offset their own carbon emissions, or to investors uh, which are pleased to do something to save the planet. Once the offset has occurred, the carbon credit is then removed from the registry, or in the jargon, retired, to ensure it cannot be sold again. All of which sounds absolutely great. It describes a virtuous circle in which the money generated from pricing carbon in the market gets reinvested in green energy and carbon sequestration projects, accelerating the shift away from fossil fuels. And indeed, a great deal of excitement was generated when this idea first achieved common currency. In January 2021, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, the TSVCM, chaired by our own former Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, predicted the global voluntary carbon credit markets would, if all went well, be worth $180 billion by 2030. Morgan Stanley's pushed that optimistic projection out a further 20 years and predicted it'd be worth $250 billion by 2050. McKinsey advisors to the TSVCM estimated demand for carbon credits would increase by a factor of 15 by 2030 and by a factor up to 100 by 2050. Now, three years on, things look a bit less rosy than those projections. The voluntary carbon credit markets seem, it's hard to get hold of a figure, but they seem to be stuck somewhere around $2 billion. So to reach that $180 billion target set by the TSVCM three years ago, it'll have to grow at a compound annual rate of 111% for the next six years. What went wrong, or more charitably, what failed to go right? Seems to be a number of things. First, there was scope for unscrupulous businesses to purchase the right to continue polluting at uh, trivial cost. There was equal scope for unscrupulous promoters to exaggerate the benefits of the schemes which voluntary carbon credit investors were funding. The intermediaries charged with validating the projects struggled to distinguish between the good projects and the bad projects. The methodologies of evaluation were clearly inadequate to the task. Greenwashing became as evident in the voluntary carbon credit markets as it was in any other part of the ESG universe. Registries struggled to record ownership, it took weeks for retirements to be confirmed, and it proved very difficult to prevent carbon credits from being sold more than once. Nor, of course, have the carbon credit markets proved entirely exempt from the wider disillusionment with environmental thinking which has set in since recessions arrived and warfare returned. So it's not surprising that the voluntary carbon markets have so far failed to fill the most fulfill the most optimistic expectations. It's an unmistakable case of buyer beware. The interesting question is what it will take to get the voluntary carbon credit markets back on course to that $180 billion size by the end of this decade. 
Clearly, greenwashing projects need to be eliminated and the shortcomings in the registration and certification of projects need to be fixed. Issuance and trading have to change too. They need to move from inefficient bilateral transactions to multilateral and probably global trading platforms. To help us understand how we can make that transition, its nature and its timing, we're joined by four experts in the voluntary carbon credit markets. Jim Rowe is the founder and CEO of Capturient, a global integrated environmental asset validator, authenticator, registry and regulated exchange, and of course the generous sponsor of our discussion today. Dina Reitman is of counsel in the finance, energy and commodities practice at DLA Piper, the global law firm. Sean Mullins is a senior vice president at Northern Trust, where he's led digital assets and financial markets product implementation group since 2021. Uh, where they look to identify new opportunities and operating models created by emerging technologies such as blockchain and AI. Bemi Olulei is Assistant Professor at Imperial College, where she specializes in the uptake of clean technologies and fuels in cost-effective ways as part of an effective decarbonization strategy. Now, in addition to our panelists, we also have you, our audience, our panelists are as eager to answer your questions as they are to answer mine. So I encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your screens. I will not be saving those questions and comments up to the end, but we'll endeavor to get our panelists to answer them as we go along so that everybody can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. I'd like to kick our discussion off by asking uh, each of our panelists, whether they think the range of factors I've just referred to, the allegations of greenwashing, those inadequate uh, registration and certification services, uh, and possibly this wider weakening of support for environmental sacrifices in the wake of recessionary conditions, uh, and of course the war in Ukraine and now the war in the Middle East. I just wonder if those factors are now showing any signs of being brought under control. Dina, I wonder if I could throw that question at, at, at you first. I, I'm yeah, giving sure. a rather negative um, picture. What's your sense? Are we moving into more positive territory? I think it's very easy to poke holes at the first movers in something. And I think just like with everything else in life, when you do it and you do things more and more, you get better and better and better at those things which is exactly what I believe is gonna happen in these voluntary carbon markets. We're gonna learn from these mistakes. We're gonna learn from um, someone who was brave enough to move us even to the point where we can find mistakes in methodologies or in chain of title issues as you have, had mentioned, right? So you'll find that those that are entering the market now like Capturient and Northern Trust, they're beginning to recognize that the buyer of the credit wants more, let's see, you mentioned efficiency. They definitely want efficiency. They want more confidence. And that's why this panel is going to talk about, and I'm actually pretty glad that you started pretty grim because it gives us a point to tell you how this market will move and fix those things that were not working for the ultimate buyer, which is the market, right? There has to be a supply and demand. So we'll move into science-based credits. We will move into credit information and project information being moved to the blockchain. 
And every time we create and think of technology and use digital assets in this space, whether it be a token or not, any other kind of digital asset, we remove the lack of confidence the buyer has that what they're buying is actually what they're buying and that it hasn't been retired. As you said, you told everyone what consumption means here. It means retired. And we'll have more confidence. And again, we'll have more efficiency. And then we'll be able to move into a global market, one where the buyer is confident. So the buyer beware, as you had mentioned, will be reduced. And hopefully the projections will be met, if not exceeded. Uh, thanks, Dina. Uh, Bemi, you've heard what, what Dina said. These are the natural growing pains of a, of a new market. We shouldn't be looking to kick the bottom brick out here. Solutions are coming. We're going to get more and better information. We're going to get a global trading platform or set of global trading platforms, which will uh, lead us to accurate price discovery. But I wonder, uh, looking back to my Economics 101, uh, where we were all brought up on Arthur Pigou's insight that negative externalities like pollution environmental damage should be taxed. And yet, I sometimes have the feeling that these large corporations and uh, senior civil servants and world leaders like to go to these uh, meetings. Uh, what they don't want to talk about is taxing people. So they think, well, the market must have a solution here. Uh, let's set up initially these uh, cap and trade emissions trading schemes, of which Europe was the, was the leader, and I think still the biggest, but there's like several dozen, I think 48 in all of these uh, cap and trade schemes operating around the world. And now we've got these voluntary carbon credit markets coming along um, uh, as well. I, I, my question here really is, um, is there a fundamental problem here? Are we kind of ignoring what fundamental economics tells us that you have to tax these activities out of existence? You can't hope to trade them out of existence. And that if these trading schemes don't evolve, as Dina says, in, in this more positive way and start to set prices, be based on proper information, that we're going to revert to taxes anyway, uh, because this problem has become too urgent to do anything else. So is there a fundamental problem here, Femi? Uh, thanks, Dominic. I agree with Dina that they are growing pains. Um, the market has potential to evolve and develop. I mean, the concept of just taxing everything is what we what most people want. Um, you know, if if um climate change is a market failure because of CO two, then just tax the externality. However, it's difficult to determine what level of tax to give and for how long. Um, because for some players in the space, it will cost them nothing to mitigate CO2 and some, and for some, it could be as high as $1,000 per ton. So how do you determine the, the right level of tax? Um, another challenge is how do you incentivize the early innovators? So 5 to 10% of the market will invest in alternatives anyway without requiring offsets. Um, so how do you encourage them to, to make those investments? I think in the long run, you want to tax the laggards, um, the late adopters, but in these early years, you want to encourage uh, the innovators. So an emission trading scheme is a good way to do that, although it hasn't been effective um, so far, um, whether it's the EU or the remaining 47 um, emissions trading scheme. So the goal is to, to make them more effective for that period of time, at least to stabilize some form of agreeable carbon tax. Now, the, these schemes are part of the compliance market, which we've seen, there's, we've seen the evidence that they've supported innovation activities. 
in alternative technologies, but not necessarily in the optic of these uh, technologies. Now, on the other hand, for the voluntary um, carbon market, the price of carbon is just too low. Um, so I agree we'll ultimately need a carbon tax, but how we, we need to gradually introduce it just to encourage any innovators to invest in, in alternative solutions. Mm -hmm. Jim, did you want to say something at this point? Or Look, I'll just add on a couple of things. I think any market, as Dina was uh, you know, stating, is that it's going to go through a lot of you know, whipsaw. There's going to be a lot of change. And if you look at the time period between uh, you know, really the start of this, which has been about 15 to you know, 18 years to really the beginning of this year, it was kind of a little bit of a party. And this year was like the year of rationalization. Uh, you could combine it with a you know a party, or you could combine it with or you know equate it to what the hype curve is. So you had a lot of hype effectively between 1999 and the end of 2022, and now this year is kind of you're on the backside, and I think we're actually start you know we're in the trough on the backside of the hype curve, and we're going to actually see is that you get real. There's nothing wrong with questioning what's going on, and I think that's that's just healthy. And I think you're going to see a lot of good things come out of it in the next year or two. You're going to see a transition from, you know, more uh, to non-nature-based activities. You're going to see a different type of individual. You're going to see a, a different financial innovation. You're going to see things that are very different. You're going to see more demand pull activities. It, it's going to be a different market going forward than it has been historically. And there's a lot of, you know, if you look at how the the crypto markets worked and we're, you know, you, there's a, now a lot of analogies here. Look at how the merchant energy business was, went in the early nineties, both in the U S and in Europe. I mean, you, you got a lot of things that were created that were good uh, weather derivatives. These types of things were in the, in the middle nineties. Um, and we're about ready to enter that phase in the, in the, in the carbon business. Sean, uh, you, you've heard what, what everyone said, and I'm sure you've got, you've got comments to make. Could I, could I throw out you two, very unfair questions on top of that. You, you can throw in whatever comments you want first. But I, I'm my first question is, what are the links between voluntary carbon markets and the existing cap and trade emission schemes? Whether, whether when you're thinking about building a platform here, how much attention do you have to pay to them? Um, and I, I, I suppose, secondly, both um, uh, Dina and Bemi in their separate ways uh, and Jim have, have looked forward to a global market in carbon credits developing. But it seems to me there is this fundamental split between the, the highly industrialized countries who are churning out most of these, uh, or, uh, you know, um, CO2 emissions, but also kind of exporting them to developing markets as a way of reducing their own. Um, is, there a, is there a contradiction there between, um, you know, developing countries? Do you think, well, this is just, you know, voluntary carbon credits, just another scheme by the developed countries to hold us back? So two complex questions there, but do, come back on what you think the others have said as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on what the others said first um, before I try and tackle the, the two curveballs you've sent my way, which I, I appreciate, Dominic. Thank you for that. Um, but I think just to cover the, um, and I, I think the um, the link Jim made to crypto is absolutely spot on, right? I mean, I work in digital assets and innovation. And if you're talking about an immature um, market with its um, uh, bad actors and inefficiencies, yeah, it, things could be a lot worse in the carbon space. Just look over the fence to what's going on in crypto, right? Um, but as you say, you learn a lot of lessons. We've been a big advocate for many years that 
the financial infrastructure and regulation and everything that's our bread and butter with regards to transparency, records, reporting, and so on, would really benefit this ecosystem and this market. Um, so that that's that's a sort of that's the one plug I'll give for Northern Trust. I'll get back onto the subject now. Um, but um, with regards to the compliance market and the voluntary carbon market, Dominic, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head that if if the governments were willing to step in and necessarily do what they needed to do um, and take the hit that would come with that because there would be costs that be passed down um, it would be not sit well with the constituents and the voters and so on there wouldn't be a need for a voluntary carbon market but I, I think really you've got to look at it the other way around the good that the voluntary carbon market does um, it does feed a lot of money back into local communities indigenous people um, there's quite the biodiversity angle angle as well um, so really, I, I think there is definitely a place for the monetary carbon market. There's no doubt there's been bad actors and bad behaviour, um, but I, I do think it, there's, a, there's a lot of good beyond just allowing people to offset. I think with regards to your, your point around um, like a global view of the market and the, the contradictions, um, I, I think it doesn't have to be one or the other. All of those things are true. Right? I think you do have your develop, developing nations um, that will look, there's a, a big push now that the, the sovereign market, for example, there will be developing nations that are looking at how they can um, not only be a, a recipient of these credits, but create their own for protecting their rainforests um, and from um, utilizing what is their, um, their nature-based projects. When you look at the developing nations, um, they obviously are probably a little bit more advanced in the science-based projects. Um, and they have that um, them resources at their disposal, and you're seeing a lot of more of them um, crop up. Uh, but on, on, on top of that as well, they do have a lot of the infrastructure um, and the expertise um, where they can accept and put in the correct frameworks um, to really bring this market into a more mature, transparent um, and a acceptable place, really. Thanks, Sean. Now, we, we've had a, a first couple of questions in. Um, one is about what I'd call market infrastructure. One is about regulation. And uh, we might as well just jump into those those two topics straight away. If, if I take Mike Halsell's question here, how can carbon markets interoperate? Now, clearly, the, the voluntary carbon credit markets began, as I said in my opening remarks, with this kind of bilateral trading. We've now got a variety of marketplaces and exchanges of various sorts uh, coming into being. Uh, who are looking to promote the multilateral trading on a global scale, which both Dina and Bemi and Jim uh, have referred to. I counted 14 of these uh, various platforms. Mike's question is, um, how can these markets interoperate? Um, Sean, I can see you're thinking hard. So why don't I throw it at Jim first uh, to give us a sense. How, how do you make this market? Do we need standards or what? Well, I'll take I'll take that, Dominic. Um, the answer to that is yes. If you look at uh, his, you know the historical financial innovation, is which you know that's going to be our our roadmap here. Is uh -huh. that you need standardization? Look at uh, you know in 1980-81 for the first swaps right between IBM and the World Bank. Right, you, those were clunky and it, it took uh -huh. a while to get things going. And then you had ISDA come along, and you know you had. Just to, once that was established uh, from a standardization, you know, trading exploded, right? It just it just went, uh, you know, great. And it ended up becoming a great way to, um, you know, create uh, risk management tools. Uh, and you're, you're going to see the same thing here. Um, it's going to be more challenging here in the in the in this space because you're going to have much different 
political pulls and tugs here than you did it, you know, kind of just trading, you know, commodities back in the, you know, basic commodities that you had in the early 80s, et cetera. Because uh, every government's going to have its own little issues. Um, and there's not 14 registries or an exchange. There's probably right around 250. So uh, wow. they haven't, we haven't reached the crypto level of 2000, but, you know, people are trying, but that'll get rationalized out. A great deal of those those exchanges, et cetera, are technically not exchanges. Uh, we use right. the word improperly in the word exchange. Um, most, uh, I would say um, nearly 100% of exchanges are really clearinghouses. They're not truly what the this team would call exchanges under the true definition. Yeah. Yeah. So you have some you have some definition issues there. You have definition issues everywhere. Um, even in English between the EU definitions of things and the American definition of things. So there has to be a lot of standardization, rationalization to go before you have that true interoperability that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Additionally, when you start using things like DLT blockchain, um, I'll use them synonymously here. It'll, you know, there'll be some little, um, you know, gaps in, in being able to trade things efficiently or exchange things. Uh, it, Carbon credit trading is not going to be like other commodities or, or you know, stocks or bonds. It's very different because you're using them to offset. They're going to be consumed. Okay, so it's a different it's a different item and product that you have. So you are going to get it. It's going to take a little longer than what people think. Uh, it will be a lot clunkier, and also you have too many you know cooks in the kitchen here when it comes to actually getting getting the standardization right. Jim, can I just add on that a little bit? Yeah. So there's there's Standardization and then there's commoditizing. Okay. They're two different things. So this leads into your next question that you have up on that board. Is carbon a commodity or is carbon a security? So carbon is a commodity. Okay. Carbon is regulated by the CFTC in the United States. That was one of the questions was, is it regulated by the CFTC? You always have to think to yourself, um, you know, I, there's a famous case out there about when you're uh, buying oranges or you're investing in the orange groove grove, right? When you're investing in the orange grove and you want the orange grove to make a profit, that is a security. When you're buying oranges and oranges are oranges are oranges, you are buying a commodity. And so there's, when you're commoditizing this market, that is how I believe we will be able to become global because commodities are traded globally. Now, oil is traded globally, right? So are grains, it is a global market. Now there are commodities then are standardized, right? So the grade of crude oil or the, um, let's see, or the heat content in natural gas, okay? Those are standardized so that you know exactly what it is that you're buying as a commodity and then their value throughout the globe. And that is how using what Jim had mentioned, the DLT or the blockchain will allow us to commoditize this very complicated, as he mentioned, commodity, because each metric ton of a carbon equivalent, like a carbon dioxide equivalent, comes from a different type of product or a different type of project. And all that information is important to the buyer, and that would be put on the DLT or the blockchain. However, if that one metric ton is a commodity, then it is a commodity, is a commodity, is a commodity, if, as Jim says, it is standardized meaning you know you're actually buying what you're really buying, one CO2 equivalent of carbon dioxide throughout the world. 
And I hope that that answers your second question. And I hope that answers the first, like builds upon what Jim said for the first question. And Sean made a really good point, which I think we kind of glossed over, which was, you know, the voluntary carbon markets are doing a lot for um, indigenous people, right? Projects often are in places where they're developing nations, right? It is not, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, and I don't know where they, this comes from, like this money grabber, this like mercantile, you know, imperialistic um, market, right? A lot of these projects are in areas where money, jobs, and things are needed. And these projects go there and they do that and they invest. And you're also finding that they not only invest in creating the carbon commodity, but they invest in the communities. I have some clients that will dedicate part of the uh, funds from the stream of the sale of carbon to the community in which they're in because they have um, they have an interest in doing that. It means their project will be successful. So I just wanted to make sure that everyone really heard what Sean was saying there because there's like this notion that it's like um, almost like the mercantile trading system all over again here. And I just don't see it. I know Sean's shaking his head, but. Yeah, just before Sean does, just to make, make sure we've answered Amy Supp's question here, uh, you were pretty clear that that carbon is a commodity, even if it's produced from different industrial or other processes. Um, her question is: You've got the the um, the CFTC and the Senate Agricultural Committee saying we must have a task force to work out whether carbon is a commodity or a security. Now you're clear it's a commodity. Do you? Why do they need a a task force to work out whether it's a commodity or a security? Are they? Is this a is this oh, a war between between regulators or what? It's, if you're, they if you're say not, it's not. Yeah, it's not a turf war, but perhaps it's a turf war. Um, there's already a construct in the United States for how um, securities are determined, right? It's a very, very, you know, we're based on common law. You're based on common law. It's a very familiar and popular and overly cited case. It's called the Howey test. Okay, essentially, if you have a if you have a security. You're invested in the overall profit of the investment of the project, right? It's very different than when you're buying a commodity, right? When you're buying a commodity, you are buying something that is fungible. You are buying something that, you know, you're going to consume, right? There are traders, though, that trade commodities, and then they, they want to see whether the value of that commodity will be raised or lowered based upon, you know, consumption, which is supply and demand fundamentals. Okay, that's very different investment. Okay, and already we have the um, Commodity Exchange Act, which was amended by the Dodd-Frank Act, which very clearly sets out how security-based swaps are regulated. They're regulated by the SEC. So this will be the same thing. They just have to figure out how they're going to split their jurisdiction, right? Because there are things that can start out as securities, but then end up, you know, perhaps becoming commodities especially if we start talking about the digital asset space. I mean, it's just a new place. It's a new area. It's a new um, frontier. And I think that it's probably very good for them to be careful and make sure that the laws we have on the books cover all these um, questions. Uh, Dominic, can I add to that a little bit um, as a individual who also owns a broker dealer in the United States? Um, look, regulators in the US, it's their job to keep their job. So they need to kind of justify their existence on some of this. But as Dina said, it's pretty clear what the rules are. And it just, it, it will happen and it will be done 
um, like we all always think. This, we're in a commodities business now. I can create securities out of if we started doing pooling and these types of things. Then it does create and you know get into the field of a security. So the rules are pretty standard. We know them. This is just a little bit of you know typical politics that's going on. Mm -hmm. Sean, you uh, I, I think wanted to to say something on this on this issue as well. Um, the, yeah, the... sure. Um, I, I won't comment on the regulator. Obviously, my, my Northern Trust tagline is we love the regulator. And we stand by all of their decisions and points they raise. One thing I did just want to add on the back of um, uh, Dina's point, I think on top of the um, the standards, I think education is key as well. I think this, the sooner that the buyers and the project developers as well um, get a better understanding of what it is they're buying, what the differences are between the projects, the quality, um, the the, um, the longevity of um, and the security of the tokens that they're buying, or the carbon credits, sorry, we haven't gotten to tokenization yet. Um, I think then they will start demanding those standards, they'll start to understand those standards, and they will start to look for uh, preferential um, standards over others and project quality and so on. So I think um, I think they go hand in hand. Just to add to that, that the education and the standardisation um, go hand in hand in, in moving this market forward. Now, um, let's thanks, Sean. Let's 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 move forward a bit. I think we are seeing evidence uh, that that larger companies are now pulling away from buying these these offset projects and starting to fund projects directly. And, and Mike Halsell has asked another question here, which is, can major emission companies make their own carbon credits, uh, for example, by developing direct air capture, directly sourcing carbon capture and storage? Uh, he, he adds, I think, as an afterthought there, that in my experience, the locals get a very small share of the total investments, mostly mostly greenwashing. But I'm interested in that, in that, in that question Mike raises and this phenomenon where these larger companies are saying, well, actually, we're not just going to buy these things. We might start making them ourselves. Um, because, uh, Jim, I, I'm confident you have views on this, um, well, because an awful lot of those carbon credits is these nature-based schemes where most of this greenwashing has occurred, um, and maybe it's you know better plan to do these things in uh, in non-nature schemes, which are more measurable, more scientific, uh, and more accountable. I, I would answer that in two parts, Dominic, and, and that's one of the theses and cornerstones of our operation is that we're primarily focused on non-nature-based activities. So oil and gas, power mining, you know, petrochemicals, technology, et cetera, versus nature. We're not anti-nature. We're just, we just focus more on the non-nature-based activities. And I think that's where you're going to see your flight to quality because of the issues you just mentioned is that they are scientific. You can measure them. There is a lot less opportunity for fraud and for, you know, misallocation, et cetera. Now, you are seeing bigger companies. It's been announced, you know, there's there's been the shells and other people that have already announced that they're going to pull back from the actual offset side and actually invest in projects themselves to, you know, create those 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 credits. In fact, we work with a number of those um, counterparties that are doing just that. So you're, you're going to see that as more of a trend. And that's that has a couple of things to do with it. One is they're tired of the egg on their face of buying some credits that go south. And also they have greater control of whatever they can they can do and their dollars or euros or pounds can actually go directly to something that benefits them. So it's they're not just buying something to offset it, they're actually investing in technically in their own future. Right, and that goes right to what we were talking about earlier, Dominic, with commoditization. Okay, so what we're seeing, the answer to the question is yes, 
companies can create their own carbon asset. But be very careful of what we're calling carbon credit and a carbon asset. Okay, so just you have to think of it like any other commodity market. When you pull raw oil out of the ground, it is raw. All right, that is an asset that you own. You want to commoditize it, it has to meet the standards. Then it becomes a commodity of carbon credit because then it's traded because it then represents your asset. It's been changed, standardized into one CO2E metric ton, which can be traded and bought and sold as a commodity, okay? So the answer to your question is yes. And then just to piggyback off of what Jim's saying, and I'm sure Sean's gonna pop in here because he just came off of mute, companies are investing in projects to create their own asset, which is a carbon asset. And yes, this is happening. And yes, it's happening in direct art carbon capture because it's measured scientifically and these projects that come off of Capturian, the buyer is going to be more um, comfortable and confident that they are buying what they say they're buying. And then you can use platforms like the Northern Trust platform where you take this asset and they make it a credit so that somebody can then buy it. This is a trend. Sean, did you want to add on? Because you came off mute. Yeah, I was just going to um, sort of... Uh extend a little bit of what, what Jim said there. We're, we're seeing as well that some um, big corporations as well are pulling back from the voluntary carbon market and not necessarily reinvesting that funds into creating their own um, carbon credits or their own infrastructure to do that. They're actually reinvesting that into decarbonizing their operating model and their um, logistical um, operation. Um, and knowing that they've got a carbon neutral target in so many years ahead and they were trying to decarbonize as much as possible up to the point at which they do need to offset that little bit remaining and that's a really positive step forward um, because essentially the, the voluntary carbon market should be a last resort right organizations should be trying to decarbonize and then they should reach in and dip into that market um, to really offset that last little piece that they just can't can't quite do so um through some of the conversations we're having here we're seeing that trend um uh, come up again, which is really positive, um, the decarbonisation angle. Uh, Bemi, you've been you've been very patient listening to to the observations made by the audience and by and by your your fellow uh, panelists. Uh, we've had a follow up here from from Amy Sup, who asked a question about the the task force, which is being set up by the Department of Agriculture and the CFTC to decide whether uh, commodity, uh, carbon is a commodity or a security. We've been pretty clear it's not a security, not until at least you put it into a pool of some sort anyway. Um, but she, she points out that actually the task was to protect against greenwashing. Uh, commodity versus security is a, is a kind of sideshow. They're also going to be talking about that. And if we're right, it shouldn't take them long to talk about that. So they'll spend most of their time talking about, about greenwashing. And clearly getting rid of greenwashing is a very important part of solving the integrity problem this market has has created that means you've got to get more and you've got to get better data about these projects. We just listened. One of the answers is going to be, you know, emitters creating their own projects, but at least they know what they're doing rather than buying somebody else's. But, you know, if the market is to take off, we need data from these nature based products projects as well. These forests and these swamps and and all the rest of it. Um, so people can invest in carbon credits with much more much more confidence. What 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 do you think needs to be done, Bemi, in terms of um, I mean, maybe this is something where where artificial intelligence can play play a part uh, in producing better quality data. But maybe you have other ideas about how we can get better data. 
I mean, my, my top most is, is using AI, um, especially for natural based solution. Um, I mean, it will take a while to gather um, very good data um, to increase confidence in, in the solutions, especially because of the uncertainties um, that arise with them, what is considered to last and the timelines. Um, with the solution. When it comes to technological solutions, whether it's to direct air capture, carbon capture and storage, so along the decarbonization line, I think it's easier um, to get data from those solutions because you can measure um, how much CO2 is reduced by looking at the emission factors of, of the technologies as well as the alternatives and, and trade these solutions. But I wanted to add to the discussion about CO2 as a commodity or a security because I think it will affect um, the technological solutions for decarbonization. Now, in some in some contexts, when it comes to carbon trading, carbon is seen as a, a commodity. I think when it comes to climate change and the transition uh, to net zero, is seen as a security. So it's really bringing those two together. Um, Will, will, will be important and I hope the tax force can find some form of common language um, for carbon that goes through offsets to decarbonization and to climate change. Um, so I also like wanted when, to add, yeah. Sure, okay, so I'm trying to follow. So you mean like when when companies invest, like Sean was saying, in, in projects or invest in technology that you're saying is more like investing like a security. When 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 companies invest in technology to mitigate climate yeah, change okay. um, or to support that transition, it's often seen as a security. Yeah, no, that that's that's exactly what we all just said. Perfect. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I was yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And and I think the challenge for the voluntary carbon market is um at the moment the carbon price is too low. Um, to offset of the company's yeah. investment in in these technologies. Of course, there is a. It will increase in the future. I think with more companies participating in the market, the price will will go up. Um, yeah. But I think we're seeing also, are we not, maybe the, the the immaturity of the market. You're seeing pretty wide spreads in in carbon prices, from sort of ten dollars to a thousand dollars. Uh, with a sort of median price like twenty twenty five dollars, which, as you say, is is much lower than the needs for this to work, which which causes me to worry that you know can voluntary carbon credit markets take off quickly enough to address this problem? You know, what's the speed at which we can create this global market in trading of carbon as a commodity, not as a security, with these interlinked, interoperating, standardized contracts being yeah. traded? investors and companies all over the world i mean how long is it going to take to build that you know will the planet catch fire before we get there i don't think the planet will catch fire before we get there but i also think it depends on how the market is designed so there are a lot of heterogeneous agents in the market if you take the point sources of the technologies of the different players whether it's offsetting or reducing co2 emissions and historically we've not had markets with a lot of heterogeneous players there are a lot of people, but they speak the same language. In this case, they were speaking different languages in terms of the, their carbon prices or their internal um, carbon prices um, compared to some form of an external carbon price, which is set by the market. Um, but luckily, we're in the era of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, so I see a future where we use those tools to design the market 
um, that accounts for this heterogeneity and shows a timeline of the different um, carbon carbon prices. Dominic, can I jump in on a couple points here? Yeah. Um, so on on AI, I think it, you can really bifurcate it between where you're at on the verifying side of the equation versus the actual authentication and the registry. So there can be a lot done on the verification side. In fact, we on on the validation side and authentication side, we use AI already, and that's how come we can guarantee you know activity under 30 days when we do something because we do use it. And it's, it, it enables us to do a lot of things, and there's some great things in AI that are already out there that are really off the shelf that can expedite things quite quickly. Um, the the other point of the pricing issue is that what you don't have here or what you do have in this market is very different than others it, versus wheat or oil or something like that. That's a standard commodity is that you have the issue of local politics. So just in the United States, you have various states that put up things and then they put requirements that certain of a certain amount of the credits have to be locally sourced. Well, Right then and there, you start putting impurities into the system that you you can't do. There's going to be a lot of countries that basically say the credits have to be generated here in this this country. Um, so you're going to have industries you're going to, in the states in the U.S. There, all the states are doing different. It's, so you're going to have this. You're not going to have a pure convergence of of pricing. You're going to have these impurities based on local local laws and local issues. Thanks, Jim. Now, we've had an interesting question here from, from Pedro Baez. Uh, I hope I got your name right there, Pedro. My English people are famous for mispronouncing names. Uh, great comments and views so far. Thanks for saying that. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, your question to the panel is specific to the project from the World Bank Climate Warehouse Project, which has now been transformed into the CADT Climate Action Data Trust. Uh, I confess I hadn't heard of this, so I've just gone to the, the Climate Warehouse uh, website and I see the Climate Warehouse program prototypes, tests, develops digital infrastructure to foster greater transparency, trust, and integrity in the carbon market. So it's bang on in terms of its objectives. It's pointing in the right, <coughs> the right direction. Um, Sean, have you have you come across this this World Bank project and in building your own uh, platform, have you paid attention to the end-to-end -end digital ecosystem for carbon markets, which the Climate Warehouse is? is looking to build yeah yeah um we have come across it we've taken a look um and we, we're very aware of um sort of the the other options that are out in the market um and i think it, this kind of leads on nicely from jim's point actually i think the the, the point he mentions and and just sort of putting um, my history in private equity on there with valuations on on um, private investments there's always going to be sort of discounts or multiples that are added to the value of something and I think that isn't a problem in a transparent market. In an opaque market, it's incredibly difficult um, because there's no understanding there. You don't have that price comparison. Um, so I think the the um, key elements you've touched on there, um, Dominic, that are in that um, sort of that little sort of sales pitch you just read off, um, are exactly the the things we need to tackle in order to move this forward, right? We've already spoken about standardization. We've already spoken about education. Um, Bemi gave a great um, uh, outlook on how um, data and um, how we can use that data um, to, to improve those factors. Um, and the next one, yeah, transparency is key, right? How can you make sure that those um, um, standards are available, that the, um, the data you want to understand about what it is you're buying because you now understand how the market works how can you make sure that that's available um, how can you make sure that the 
the credit you're buying is genuine, exists, and that one when it's um, offset, it's destroyed. It no longer exists, you know. Um, so I, I don't think there's any secret into how an immature market becomes um, a, a flagship mature market, um, and transparency is just part of that journey. Pedro has a specific question for you, uh, Sean, which is which is whether you, you know, do you have views on insetting, um, which he says address some of the comments you raised. Insetting, I understand, is this kind of opposite of offsetting, where you as a as an investor or a company, I don't know, start to reforest things or clean up rivers just as part of your normal course of business. Um, so rather than carrying on polluting and then trying to buy something to offset it, you actually try and clean up your your business processes directly. Has insetting been part of your your thinking i don't know how you get that onto a platform yeah it, um well that's not really our space right so i think that comes into your sustainability reporting when you look at your um uh your uh, emissions um targets and so on it comes into that i mean it, it in setting can be anything right i think it comes from you look at um, mcdonald's reuse their uh, frying oil and make biodiesel British always buying buying land to plant trees it's the same thing isn't it exactly yeah and I think this I think that there's again I, I hark back to sort of a point I raised earlier that's all incredibly positive the, we're only gonna stop what's happening if the the green organizations become greener and the brown organizations become better um, you know the the answer to um, to save the planet is not going to be the voluntary carbon market that's going to help it's going to add benefit um, but ultimately, organisations need to decarbonise. Um, now, whether that be insetting um, or whether that be just reducing their, their carbon emissions, um, they're, they're all positive steps in the right direction. From our view, as I mentioned before, that, that voluntary offsetting really is the last result. Um, yeah, insetting and decarbonising um, should happen before an organisation dips into that market. Jim, I don't know whether you had any thoughts on how you make insetting tradable or you don't have to have any, but you might. No, Sean, Sean pretty much said it. One, one thing I would like to bring up, though, is that, you know, whether or not you're net zero or net this or whatever you happen to be, I think what you're also seeing a trend in is uh, the reduced villainization of carbon and actually the concept of repurposing carbon. And I think that's where you're going to get some really interesting innovation. Um, so, you know, Everybody running around and saying, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to plant that. All that's gotten is scrutiny from regulators and particularly the SEC in the U.S. on saying, hey, you're making fraudulent claims, et cetera. So what I what I see is actually the repurposing of carbon. So if you're going to capture it, then it becomes things like green cement. And there, I mean, there's all kinds of other things that can be generated from that. And if you let the private sector innovate like it historically has you'll 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 get you'll get really top quality solutions and the, to me that is where it goes i mean your body's 15 to 18 percent carbon right you're not gonna you don't want to decarbonize yourself um carbon can be good it's it's a it's it's an asset use it in the proper proper way uh, manage it don't don't abuse it okay thanks for reminding us we're all carbon-based life forms jim um don't, don't always feel like that but yeah um there's more water but yeah. Um, Rachel Meller has asked an interesting question. Will there be any restrictions on which entities are allowed to buy carbon credits? No, you're shaking your head there. 
Jim, I mean, I, I'm thinking about asset managers here, looking at these as an asset class. You know, at the moment, it's not the sort of market you want to get too heavily involved with, is it? Because the prices are all over the map. The projects are hard to police. Uh, no matter how optimistic your view is, we don't yet have a global market trading standardized products, do we? Well, I, I do believe it's an asset class. So I think you're, the first part of that question, to me, it's an asset class. Now, it's how you manage it. I think you're going to see different, back to my my thesis on financial innovation, you're going to start to see more retail products. You're going to start seeing uh, pooling like mortgage back. You're going to start seeing things that take away the credit risk exposure of single single uh, uh, sponsors. You're, you, this is why I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic. And that's why I say we're on the backside of the hype curve, because you're going to start seeing some really innovative things when it comes to uh, blockchain. You're going to start seeing things on, on you can, you be much more at a retail level in some of this. You're going to see massive amounts and the switch to demand side because everybody's been focusing on supply side. So I think Sean could probably opine it to, you know, as much, if not more than I can. Yeah, I think just one point, um, really interesting question. And I, I think, yeah, absolutely, the buyer can be anybody. But what, what we've seen from our, our engagement with the industry is a lot of project developers are actually quite picky around who their buyers are for good reason. They don't want their credits to be sold to a buyer that's going to trade them on the secondary market and make money. They want their credits to be sold to buyers that are trying to decarbonize, um, that are insetting, that are making an effort to um, become better um uh, uh, uh yeah better environmental actors um and so i think you have to remember that every actor in this marketplace has a different incentive and a different reason for being in there right the project developer wants to do well they want to um make the planet a better place the buyers have all different incentives right and I think you just really need to pair together the people that are doing the right thing. And that's really the angle we've coming from. So not only do we look to provide transparency on the project developer and the credits that they're creating, we also look to provide transparency on the buyer um, that's buying those credits um, to ensure, again, that it is just to offset the little piece of emissions that um, they, they just can't quite reduce from their, from their operating model. Now, now Dina, uh, yeah. following up Rachel's comment here about will there be restrictions on which entities can buy this this is not at the moment a market which any regulator is going to feel comfortable advising retail investors to to get involved with uh i'd have i'd have thought so could i ask you to give us some future thinking about how you think the regulation of these markets is is going to evolve you've explained it's a commodity it's more likely to be cftc than than sec for example but what about these certification agencies who sort of popped up and and by most accounts, are not doing the adequate job for a variety of, of reasons. Um, we're starting to see some litigation, particularly from from NGOs, uh, about greenwashing, greenwashing schemes. Um, so, if you if I asked you to look ahead at how you think a successful global standardised um, marketplace in 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 carbon credits is going to look like, what would that? What will the regulatory infrastructure be? Who will be involved? Who will be allowed to participate? Yeah, so I think the infrastructure will be like you have today. So there are many phases and facets to this market, right? So just to go back to the question that was asked about who could participate, Sean really is talking about the first phase of this market where you have the project developer and you want the buyer to buy the carbon credit and consume. But there are people like my mom who want to help 
the environment. And Amy could probably tell you. And so what you're seeing is, is you're beginning to see um, institutional investors take this asset class, as Jim has said, and mix it into some of their portfolios so that it becomes more available to people like my mom who want to figure out and help how to invest in uh, climate change, but don't have the money or the ability to consume a carbon credit like Sean was talking about. So the market's going to evolve and it's going to um, allow all sorts of participation, whether it be um, retail and then like what Sean and Jim and everyone were talking about, institutional investors and buyers for consumption, okay? Which is why you have to be super careful when you're buying an airline ticket and they tell you you're buying a carbon credit. Because are you, right? Like, I, I'm not sure, okay? Um, but to go to your question as to, is there an infrastructure here as to how this is regulated? And yes, the infrastructure is here. I mean, you can't commit fraud or market manipulation in a physical commodity market. So if you end up having a certification that is wrong or fraudulent, or you find out that they're taking money and they're manipulating you know, their report or what have you, the CTC already has jurisdiction, right? Because you've manipulated or committed a fraud even in the physical purchase and sale and delivery of a carbon credit. If you're going to put this asset class into a mutual fund or into a commodity pool, then you have the SEC and you have the CFTC already with the tools to regulate here. Do they need more regula regulatory tools? Perhaps, and we shall see. Um, but I don't think that that will hinder the growth of this, this market right now, because I do think right now the guardrails are there um, for an, enough. Well, they're there enough for this market to take off for all types of buyers. Because as Jim and Sean and Emmy have mentioned, we are moving towards now looking at the buy side. Uh, interestingly, Rachel was, was, she says, asking from a compliance perspective, as an EMI who facilitates investment studies, and we're expecting to see more of these. We want to understand the risks we need to cover off from a financial crime perspective, reputational damage aspect for her business. So it was a, it was a question which was really on the money uh, about the need to clean up this market um, in 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 general. I think um, it, it, we're into our last five minutes now, and I think we should just at least touch upon the question of of tokenization um, and Sean Jim this is this is really your area a lot of these platforms which which we've been looking at are including your own are kind of blockchain based what why does that why does that make sense well for us it's uh it's it's the provenance and the the auditability and the transparency and trust factor that all come in that you can get with uh, DLT and, and blockchain so to me it's it's pretty easy and it makes it things uh makes the transferring and, and also the retirement aspects uh, a lot easier because then you you don't have double dipping, you don't have double sales, you don't have, and then, and you know when something has been, uh, you know, burned or retired, uh, those tokens, are, it's very, you know, auditable. Is digital money a problem in this market like it is in the security token market? Do you need money on chain? Uh, not with us, but maybe I'll, I'll defer to Sean if he has, if that's their structure. No, I, I don't think it is at the moment, Dominique. I, I think there's a, there's bigger problems to overcome before you start looking at sort of atomic settlement and the issues around that. I think when you look at other digital asset classes, 
that's a different question um, because there's settlement expectations already there. Um, but with regards to um, this platform, no, it's not. I mean, we do. Um, we we can. We're a bank, so we can offer um, a settlement as a bank um, outside or off ledger, um, and we do that as part of the um, the um, carbon ecosystem product. Um, but we don't see the atomic settlement um, piece being as much in demand in this area as we do digital bonds and things like that that are also going on in the industry. Do you see in the very long term that, that all these environmental assets are going to be traded on a, a, a kind of network of, of networks of things? I'm talking here of green bonds of these uh, cap and trade allowances. Can you see a, a fully liquid global market taking place in what I might call environmental assets of all kinds? Is that part of the long term vision or is that just looking too far ahead at this point? Uh, well, if you're going to ask me, I, I would pull the word liquidity out. I think you're going to be able to see transactions. Um, the concept of liquidity, you can tokenize something that does not create liquidity. Um, so I, I think you're going to see the ease of transferability in transactions. I don't think you're going to get the massive amount of price discovery you think you would get from tokenization. So I think there's a, because that's a, that's a depth issue, right? How do you standardize? Because if you've got one one pool of investments and it's only has a, a 50 million pound or hundred million, you know, $50 million kind of level, that's not a lot to create liquidity. It's just like, why do you have liquidity in, you know, high cap, you know, uh, you know, large stocks, right? And your apples, your Microsoft, that's liquidity. But if you're talking about a small little position, that's not going to have liquidity no matter how much you digitize or tokenize it. Mm -hmm. Have we answered uh, Breeze Tinnerley's question here? To what extent do you see tokenization of carbon credits as a solution to access another asset class, which can also address transparency, integrity, trust? In other words, is tokenization going to bring to the carbon voluntary carbon credit markets the, the degree of transparency, integrity and trust, which will encourage people to invest in and trade them as an asset class? Have we answered that, do you think, uh, Jim? Uh, I I think it helps. It won't answer it because the project, the project is the project. It's a fundamental, that is the important thing, not in the way you're, you're measuring it, right? That's not the point. That was, that's the false dream of what people thought tokenization would do. Like it would just magically cure something. That's not it. I mean, you know, if you still have a bad underlying project, if you digitize it, it doesn't make it better. Right. Okay. Yeah. Your question kind of mixes the things right? The tokenization of the underlying carbon credit makes it perhaps more tradable, maybe, but it's the, I mean, I don't know if that's true, because we have a lot of markets that trade pretty well and they're not tokenized, but it's the underlying data from the blockchain that's attached to that asset that then is attached to the token that creates integrity and trust and transparency, not necessarily the token. Although the token is a cool way to maybe package it, I'd say. We've had an interesting observation from Ian Hunt. Uh, I know you've addressed it already, Dina. She draws a parallel with what's happened in uh, cryptocurrency and security token markets where um, courts and regulators have- I read know, that one. Yeah, have, have kind of thrown a lot of sand into the machine about, is this a commodity? Is this a security? Is it- No, something? not really. The token well, that was in that case is a yeah, but I think but I think Ian, Ian is making a point that maybe we need to move beyond these old-fashioned categories and start thinking about all these digital assets as streams of of income, 
streams of value. And in fact, some of the confusion we're seeing among lawyers, judges, regulators is because we're still thinking in these old categories rather than these new categories of digital assets as purely digital objects, which in which issuers are making promises to each other uh, and investors are expecting their pro those promises to be fulfilled. Like it's something new. And uh, I think he's saying carbon credits should fit into that. But we're into our last minute, and so we probably can't go into the a philosophical discussion. Yeah. What is it? Happy to talk to him about that. I don't think it's philosophical. Um, happy to talk to him about it, right? The digital asset is digital yeah. form of, of something. So happy to talk to him about that. No okay. problem. Just send yeah. me an email. So you'd be happy to, to, to pursue that with, with Ian. Um, no problem. Yeah. So I think we should we should be looking to wrap this up now. Uh, and I think I'd like to put to each of you just just one one final question, which is what what should people be be thinking about um, as they may move away from this uh, webinar? And you know, Mike Housel's final question to us, for example, is there a roadmap for global standardization? I think we've been clear in this discussion that standardization is going to be important. But how are we going to make that happen is a good example of, of something which maybe people could take away from this event as, as something to think about. But you may have other ideas. Um, wh why don't I start with you, Sean? What, what do you think is the the thing that the people listening to this webinar should focus on over the next 12 months uh, as being the most important thing to get this market working properly? I think it's just education. Right? I, I think when you look at how real change is driven through industry, is always from the end user. It's always from the purchaser, the buyer. Um, and I think the more um, everybody becomes educated, um, not only on their own carbon footprint, but also on the industry and the market itself, um, and they start driving that change through where they put their money, um, then that will um, that will filter through, and that will, in the end, um, force the hand for standards for globalization. Um, so yeah, all, all I'd say to anybody listening to this today is um, take an interest in the subject um, and um, take an active role in learning more and understanding your own carbon footprint and the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, Dina, I'm going to give the last word to Jim. So why don't you have the second to last uh, word, Dina? Yeah, sure. So I'd say if you're going to take anything away from this webinar, I would take away that you need to keep an open mind that this is developing and that what we say today can change tomorrow. And as long as you are willing to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem, we will find a solution here. Mm -hmm. Jim? Well, I, uh, just uh, actually, there's a last comment here from Van Vroom. Blockchain is a rather cumbersome tech that doesn't scale well. Are carbon credit units unavailable uh, available in other transaction frameworks? So, so you've got a, a blockchain skeptic there to, to, to deal with. <laughs> you might want to dispense with that uh, before you go. Uh, well, I think there's plenty of great successes on blockchain and DLT, which they are not the same, but um, uh, blockchain is a form of DLT. But the uh, I think there's a lot of success in, in that category. Um, so I, th I think it's going to continue to grow. I think the, the hype meter of digitization back a few years ago is going to take a lot longer than the people that are promoting it. Um, and it's, you know, it's just going to take a while to find some use cases that really set it apart. And my, you know, my belief is that actually carbon credits are one of those use cases for digitization and tokenization. So to me, I think there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a bright future there as far as the actual, you know, voluntary carbon market and, and 
you know, the, the tracing and trackability, I think this is all positive for, for every one of us. So I think it's, it's, there's a lot of growth ahead, but I think there's going to be some still bumps in the road. I think financial innovation is going to take over. I think you're going to see a different level of innovation. I, I fundamentally believe this be, changes from a professionalization too, because you had, you know, a, a market that was really driven by people with passion versus some financial discipline. So I think you're going to start to see a different type of risk manager come into come into play. So all of these are are positive, and I think you're going to see some really interesting, um, you know, instruments that get created out of all of this. So I think it actually ends up being a robust market. I think it shrinks though. I think it shrinks in the size of who's all involved, and it does become more professionalized. And it's a little bit like a forest, if we can bring in the nature-based thing. The, you know, you have a whole lot of underbrush that's grown up around. So we need to thin a lot of things out. The market will thin it and it'll let the, you know, strong trees grow. And that's what's going to happen. I'm being greedy here, but but Mike Halsell's point, is there a is there a roadmap for standardization? I, well, in my belief, there you is. The, you mentioned the ISDA example, for example, where people well, working in the SOPS market came together. They created this very successful voluntary association, which came well, up with standards, right? Is, is there Dom, any Dominic, you and I, we're multi-generational here. So the point is, is that Love people that. think, yeah. you know, yeah. they create something and they think it's the newest thing ever. If mm -hmm. you look back 25, 30 years, it's already been done. We're just changing the names here. So a lot of this, there's a roadmap. It's ISDA. It's the merchant energy business. It's surprisingly crypto. How to DeFi. I mean, they're the, the, the there's already roadmaps out there um, and you can use them for a positive thing and try to use them to avoid problems as well. So yes, there is a roadmap. With that, I think we must stop. We have run over time. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Jim Rowe from Capturient, our sponsor today, which made this uh, uh, discussion possible. Thank you, Jim. Uh, You're welcome. Jim from DLA Piper, uh, Sean Mullins from Northern Trust, uh, and Bemi Olulei from Imperial College, who uh, had, had a hard stop at three, so she left us, but we're grateful for her involvement. Our next webinar will take place, same time, same place, uh, at the end of this month, Wednesday, the 30th of November, and in it we will be exploring the future of digital money, by which I mean CBDCs, tokenized deposits, stablecoins, all that sort of stuff. I hope that uh, many of you will be able to join us then, but for now it's goodbye from the five of us. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone.